0: Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peacebuilding calendar. It's a week of events, workshops, videos, and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. Founded on the core belief that each person, actor, and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2020, held from the 2nd to the 6th of November with both live events and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at GenevaPeaceWeek.ch.
1: Hello, my name is Thomas Unger and I'm your host for this podcast on militarized masculinities and sustaining peace. Um, the podcast is part of of the digital series of the Geneva Peace Week 2020. And it's done in cooperation with Impunity Watch, a Dutch-based organization that works for many years on the fight against impunity and the master program on transitional justice of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. We will look today at the phenomenon of uh, militarized masculinities and peace and what implications militarized masculinities have uh, for peace and sustaining peace. We will do this together with Brandon Hamber, who is connected uh, to us from Northern Ireland. Good, uh, good afternoon, uh, Brandon.
2: Good
1: afternoon. And uh, we have with us also Krishna. Cachar from Impunity Watch. Uh, she's based in Guatemala. Uh, so good morning, Prisna.
3: Also good morning.
1: Let me kick off just a very brief introduction to both of our amazing speakers today. So Brandon uh, is a professor in, in Northern Ireland. He's the John Hume and Thomas O'Neill Chair in Peace at Ulster University, based at the International Conflict Research Center in CORE. He's also a member of uh, the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University, and he's a psychologist by training. Um, Brandon worked for many years uh, on various issues regarding peace and reconciliations in various contexts, from Northern Ireland uh, to South Africa, where he's originally from, to Bosnia, Colombia, Sierra Leone, and other places. And he has written extensively on South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the psychological implications of political violence. And the process of transition and reconciliation in South Africa, Northern Ireland, and, uh, and abroad. And he also focused for many years now in his work on the issue of masculinities. And we're very happy to have him with us today. And uh, we've, for introduction purposes, uh, Brisna is, um, is running the, the gender program at the Impunity Watch office in Guatemala. She has been an activist um, uh, for many years in, in the fight against impunity in, 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 in Guatemala. She worked recently on a very interesting research for Impunity Watch uh, that focused on militarized masculinities and police reform in Guatemala, and um, we are very, very eager to hear about your findings and about your thoughts on this. But uh, I would like to start with Brandon first and try to unpack a little bit uh, this uh, monstrous terminology, violent masculinity or militarized masculinity it's a terminology when you hear it you immediately um, uh, kind of uh, back off a little bit because it's uh, it comes across uh, very monstrous and one thinks immediately about man with a weapon uh, in, 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 in the hand and uh, it immediately spots the problem men are violent men are drivers of conflict uh, is this how men are in conflict uh, Brandon is this uh, the way to be a man in conflict
2: well, thanks, Thomas, and thanks very much for inviting me to speak to you today. And, and your first question, as you say, is quite a big one. Um, you know, how are men in conflict? Um, I mean, for me, in some ways, it goes back to what do we actually mean by masculinity? And for those of us who study and work on the issue of masculinity, we seldom talk about masculinity. We'll talk about masculinities because there's so many different ways, as O'Connell would say, of doing male. Um, the sort of different ways and the social norms and expectations of what it means to be a man. So there's no real one masculinity. There's multiple forms of masculinities. And these masculinities are present on the sports field, in the boardroom, in the tribal council, on the battlefield, in a nightclub, in a coffee shop. So there's multiple ways that people can uh, or men, particularly, it doesn't always have to be men, but men, particularly, can create a set of sort of social norms of what's expected of a man um, in and of itself that doesn't cause conflict, uh, you know, because there are all these multiple masculinities, but what we know in conflict situations is these type of norms can then be exaggerated and stimulated in different ways, whether it's through political rhetoric, whether it's through the machinery of the military or through paramilitary type groups. So we can see an exaggeration of that. So your question is, is it typical ways that there are men in conflict? Well, of course, as you say, when we say that we think immediately of armed people and guns, Um, but if we are true to the idea of masculinities rather than masculinity, we then also say, well, where are all the other ways of doing male that are taking place in conflict? And then we start to realize, well, they're also fathers and they're uh, civilian men. And probably most men in conflict are actually civilians. There's boys. Uh, If I think of Northern Ireland, uh, during the conflict, there was an upsurge of punk music and uh, many young men opted out of the conflict and engaged in another type of masculinity through that, or because of the nature of the society and its uh, constrictions, there were gay men who were enacting another masculinity in the conflict, but couldn't be seen in public. Um, So there are multiple ways and places where you would see masculinities. But of course, our eyes would fall on the most dangerous of those, which is awfully those which are violent and and, and conflicted, um, and of course, contribute to human rights violations.
1: And how does uh, militarization link up to masculinities? Is that something that is inherent masculine? Or is there also a feminist militarism? So how does the, the relationship between masculinity and militarization?
2: Yeah, so it's a, it's a question I, I, I get often asked, which is implied a little bit in what you're what you're saying. I mean, for me, masculinity, Masculinity is is not something that's innate. It has a performance element to it, and it has a set of expectations attached to it, which we attach to sort of dominant forms of masculinity, you know, aggression, you know, you must destroy weakness, obedience, you know, masking fear and uh, and your emotions, uh, showing strength. Uh, these are generally associated with a sort of dominant form of of men, but it doesn't mean that those qualities couldn't be enacted by any other type of sex or or gender. So they're not necessarily attached to men. Um, But when we add the word militarized for me, what we're actually meaning by that is something much more institutional. So when I talk of militarized masculinities, I'm thinking much more how are behaviors shaped and constructed by militarism, and by our military institutions, uh, particularly. So it's not just the violent enactment of certain masculinities, which might be domestic violence. It might be uh, fighting in the evening after people have had too many drinks. These are all different forms of problematic and violent masculinities. But when I say militarized, I'm trying to link it much more to uh, militarism and military institutions. The training, the discourse, the language, the values uh, that are imparted through those types of of structures. And that's not only imparted through the military. I mean, it's imparted through propaganda. It's imparted through movies. It's imparted through the entertainment industry. So militarized masculinity for me has more of that institutionalized component, not just individual behavior of individual men in conflict.
1: That's interesting. And and the, for, for me, the question is, what what, what kind of violence does this institutionalized uh, militarism produce from your experience? Is, is it like to connect it to violence? Because that's also very interesting then in terms of responses to it. So what kind of violence does this militarized masculinities or these militarized masculinities produce?
2: Well, I mean, the, the, most, the most obvious one is that those institutions create a set of norms and expectations that allow soldiers who are mainly men, but not always men, but allow soldiers to enact a certain type of masculinity on the battlefield, Um, whether that's cruelty, whether it's the ends justifies the means, which Mm. allows you to use torture, uh, whether it's around issues of of rape, um, you know, so you can see those direct forms of violations flowing from this wider context in which this Mm. type of militarism can sort of justify Mm. certain types of behavior. The more tricky bit is that once we start to talk about systems, we're starting to talk about much bigger and other forms of, of violations um, in terms of, for example, the skewing of a country's budget so that there's excessive spending on the military rather than on education. Mm-hmm. So if you ask me what violations are committed, well, there might be violations in which there is a lack of health care for certain people or lower, you know, high infant mortality rates, um, you know, much more difficult to link to this creation of these military structures. It's much easier to think about the outworking of that as direct human rights violations. But if you think of it as a system, we have to ask quite serious questions. What does the sort of military industrial complex and that type of masculinity that comes with that, that's so embedded within our societies, I think it commits a whole range of other violations that are much more invisible or much more structural. That's a bit of a tricky discussion.
1: And you said a lot of this is invisible. Do you feel that this kind of more structural causes for this more structural violence, is that uh, embedded in responses to it? Do you or do you feel that a lot of this violence remains invisible? And what's the reason for it?
2: The responses to it generally focus, and particularly in the human rights community, it focuses on the direct violations that we can see. Um, And of course, that's important. Of course, we want uh, uh, soldiers who are committing rape that that is uh, adequately uh, investigated, punished, that we have the types of uh, you know, laws and resolutions 1325 onwards uh, in place. So we, of course, we want to address those issues or direct interventions, and we can come back to interventions later. So of course, the actual addressing the direct violence is important. But what I mean by the hidden part are the parts which support that. So the arms industry, uh, the bankers who profit from militarization within our societies, the companies which make money out of Uh, Selling toy guns. Um, The families who are implicated in this wider system. Uh, There's a theorist called James DeDarian, and he actually says nowadays we've even moved away from the military industrial complex. It's the sort of military industrial entertainment complex. It's so embedded Within the movies that we watch within the games that we watch. And so I know those are not direct violations, but they're skewing our economies, they're skewing our perceptions of what security means. So you know we're more interested in investing in weapons than we are investing in human security. And the moment we start to do that, that has direct implications for healthcare, for education and for other types of issues. So I know that's quite a grand argument, but that's mm-hmm. what I mean by the invisible. I think we know a little bit more and we're, we're still learning about how to prevent the direct violations but there's this other bigger system that's also going
1: on yes and I think we will come back at the end and you mentioned one important point regarding uh, beneficiaries no because I mean uh, to look also into beneficiaries of these systems that promote uh, violent or, or militarized uh, ma- masculinities one more question before I want to move over to prisoner to contextualize this topic a little bit more is is the question of choice uh, those who who are part of these structures, uh, individuals who become part of this uh, militarized masculinity structures, what choice does an individual have? Is there an individual choice to say no? Is there an individual choice for alternatives to say, I don't want to be uh, part of these structures? I I think that this is an important question also for the way forward. I mean, how can we think about alternatives? I think we have to first talk about the choice individuals have.
2: No I mean absolutely we have to talk about the choice and and one of the challenges maybe we're swaying into intervention but one of the challenges with the sort of liberal educationless way of approaching militarized and violent masculinities is to project that idea of choice you know what we need to do is we need to do more education with young boys so that they don't get involved in violence in a certain way all of which is completely true but doesn't necessarily apply when you're living in a village and it's being raided by a group that's going to be forcefully conscripting you as a child soldier. You, know, you don't really have a choice in that context. And so, yes, I think we do need to talk about uh, choice. That doesn't mean in many societies there aren't different choices that can be made. And that's why it's important to think about it within a sort of more systemic way than just in terms of a violation way. So for example, yes, there might be militarism going on in your society, but as a man, you can always make a choice to speak out against sexism in your environment or not engage in those type of activities. So if we accept that it's part of a wider system and part of some sort of a continuum, there are all sorts of different choices that might exist. There's a choice as to whether if you're of certain means, you can choose to invest in a a military company or not or whether my university will accept money from an arms company or not, you know, so there are other types of choices that are part of the system. The choices when you're on the ground, on the battlefield, those are a little bit more, more difficult. I mean, of course, there's international law in relation to that, but they're much more tricky. And those choices are a little bit more complicated. But once you open your, your mind up and think of masculinities and, and militarized masculinities in a a bigger way, you realize actually there's a lot of layers of choice um, in terms of that from who we vote for and who we don't vote for, you know, through to our own personal actions.
1: That's interesting because that can really help us to find adequate uh, political solutions also or, or political alternatives to maybe uh, uh, very one-sided or, or narrow approaches, which we, which we often find in, in practice. But let's move maybe to Brizna, to Guatemala, and see a little bit uh, this phenomenon of militarized masculinities in a specific context. I mean, Guatemala had in 1996 uh, uh, the peace accord and it it was really closing a long chapter of violence and conflict in in this Central American country. One key part of this was also the creation of of a new police, of a civil police. I mean, it came, the accord uh, in 1996, came with the promise um, to um, democratize the police, to demilitarize the police, so to say. And uh, what happened in Guatemala then? What is You, you looked at it very closely in, in, in a study you did for Impunity Watch. What, what, what happened to this promise of the 1996 court prisoner?
3: Hi, yes, I'm happy to join you in this um, conversation. And... Um, Yes, to share about a little bit about uh, Guatemala, as you mentioned, we went through an internal conflict. And for the post-conflict stage, uh, security reform is definitely key. I mean, the Truth Commission identified that 93% of the atrocities had been committed by these um, security forces, including police forces. So the creation of a new civil police gave that hope precisely to create and change the, you could say like the the way the state looks at security, sort of hoping to change from what we call the national security doctrine, you know, um, trying to attack the enemy or the identified by the state to a more democratic um, security. I mean, we're speaking of more than 20 years later um, and I think definitely advancements were made but the problem was at the structural level since the beginning, this new police um, institution didn't really break from those militarized forms. I mean, from the beginning, more than 50 percent of the police officers who joined were for, from these former police institutions, um, from the police that had been accused of these um, human rights violations during the, the conflict. So this never gave the, uh, a real possibility to create a, a different type of um, institution. And I think the police was always sort of um, um, influenced by corruption and by the commission of human rights um, violations. And you could see throughout the history of the police institution sort of this tension between the dynamics of these old ways and the the changes or the reforms that wanted to be made, you know, and and the international community there had a really important impact in sort of promoting these changes. There was a lot of capacity building training in terms of uh, criminal investigation and sort of attacking corruption going on in in the country. And and we do see advancements. We we did see a generation of police officers who believed in a more democratic police force. However, the old ways you could say linked to the still existing military forces in these higher positions always sort of established the way the police was conducted. And um, I mean, there was cases of um, unofficial execution, for example, in 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 jails, cases that have been brought uh, to justice. Um, and this sort of, I guess, put the, um, the pressure to sort of focus more on the reform, and a National Reform Commission was actually established. But these commissions never truly had the, the full support of, of the presidents. I mean, these commissions were established, they made important uh, contributions and recommendations, uh, but they didn't have the power to oblige the police institution to sort of adopt these recommendations. So in the end, I mean, last year, the person who was heading this National Reform Commission decided to resign because she did not feel sort of the, um, the support from the executive, from the government. And so this has been sort of paralyzed now. There's no longer a reform. Commission in place. And I think this all influences in the fact that now we are facing, uh, we could say, a new way of militarization or uh, a remilitarization of, of police forces. We don't see cases of these unofficial executions, for example. You could say, like, gross human rights violations, or they're not known as much, but just the fact that as Brandon said, I mean, there's more budget being placed on the military and the fact that the advisors of the police are military officers, ex-military officers, and the continuation of this idea that to combat insecurity, you need this combination of the army with the police. This continues to be a threat or a way of working in, in Guatemala today. So yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of um, advancements that have been made and there was a, a lot of people who were convinced of uh, making changes, but these people were also let go of the police institution. So that we could say that there's been a dismantlement of the police force and these, um, officers that had been trained, that had gained a certain um, progress in dealing with things is now dismantled in the police right now.
1: That's interesting. But would you say that the police reform in Guatemala had this lens of addressing uh, uh, militarized masculinities? Was this part of the thinking from the very beginning? And then it was just challenged by those who didn't want that? Do you think that this was at least at the beginning, part of the thinking and the strategies?
3: No, it wasn't at all. I mean, the idea of the um, militarized masculinities was not part of the debate. I do think there was an idea that the way training was done had to change and the way, in the militarized way in which officers were trained in terms of dealing with very difficult contexts, I mean... We hear of of, of we've we heard of stories where police officers had to do a series of challenges, you know, where gas was thrown at them while they had to run and dust or they had to go into like holes filled with mud, with dead animals, um, that sort of thing. Um, there, there was a tendency of former officers who believed that that made rough and tough police officers and had to continue. Um, and they say that many women could not stand going through that type of training that many many left. Were there, and there was others who believed that that type of training had to change. So even though it wasn't discussed as being a, um, mm. a masculine militarized way, it did indeed have to do with these ideas and stereotypes that Brandon mentioned before about the use of aggression, uh, the stronger uh, sort of police officers. Um, I think that was sort of dealt with, but it it wasn't acknowledged that there was a way of um, masculinities um, being constructed within the police. Mm -hmm.
1: Because when you look at the case of Guatemala, one could think about it, it could have gone both ways, no? I mean, there were basically initiatives that could have pushed the country in addressing these more systematic problems, including militarized masculinity. But there seems to be, along the way, a pushback. And and now, basically, those who are not interested in challenging the structures, who use these structures, actually, to stay in power, seem to have the upper hand. Why do you think this is the case? Is, are they just stronger? Is it, does it, is it economic? Is it connected to economic reasons? Also, building on what, what Brandon said, that there are different factors probably which, which help to make the shift for those in power to stay within uh, systems of patriarchy, to stay within systems of militarized masculinities, which helps them to stay in power. So, so what are the factors that the underlying factors? that help these groups, these elites, to continue using these militarized masculinities as a political form for them?
3: Yeah, I think definitely there's. Um, it's very much linked to, to the structure in Guatemala and the power dynamics
1: mm.
3: that um, that are established. Um, I mean, the Guatemalan state has been known to have a lot of corruption going on. I mean, this has been the way of of functioning of the state since before... The peace agreements and and actually during the armed conflict, these militarized forces took and and the economic elite also took advantage of sort of creating these structures within the state. So I think there's always been a resistance to sort of lose um, their power, but we could say that definitely with the presence of the International Commission Against Impunity (CICIG) you could see a lot of uh, resistance much more from these powers who did not want to face corruption charges or face charges linked to human rights violations. So I think it's not just sort of resisting the change within the police force, but it's resisting the change within the whole state to a more democratic state. And so having a police force that does not sort of question the economic elites or these militarized powers is to their benefit. Mm-hmm. They also, I mean, within these two last governments, the, this government and the, and the previous government, we did see a race of use of stages of siege, for example, the use of violence of mixed forces of police, military, and uh, company security um, in land evictions, um, for example. So this sort of strategy, a lot of people don't see it, but in the the indigenous communities, this is something that they are faced with a lot. Um, Indigenous populations who are trying to protect their land, they're constantly being faced with these violent reactions. Um, And it has to do with with power and with land ownership. And obviously uh, an economic power does not want to lose land or the continuation of certain companies, like mining companies, hydroelectric, petroleum.
1: That's interesting. And, and, and thanks for describing a little bit the driving factors behind it. What would interest me as a last question to you is, why do young men or also, also women want to join such a police um, uh, structure? I mean, in other contexts, we see that uh, poverty and lack of development opportunities often pushes basically these young men into these structures without questioning these structures, because obviously they get paid, um, they get some form of security, some form of uh, social recognition. How is it in Guatemala? What makes young men join these institutions like the police or the military?
3: Well, what we found in the research is um, the main reason why men and women join is for an economic factor. Um, They see the police as an institution that can give them economic security. They have a stable paying wage monthly and it gives them an opportunity to retire and have retirement as well after 20 years of of service. So that was definitely uh, very much present in in the reasons why men and women join the police force. The other thing is that it doesn't really require much to join. I mean, they only need middle school uh, education to be able to join and then to pass a physical exam. So they even see that it's not much that they're asking. And they also get trained being in the police academy and in the police. A lot of people see the opportunity to even finish university, for example. There was a period where, the police institution gave the opportunity and scholarships for some officers to continue with their university studies. This is no longer in place, but this was very attractive to many people to sort of join and continue in with their education. The other thing is that there is also a a family tradition of former police officers or military officers. So we did see quite a bit of people who found pride in being part of a family of police officers and uh, former military officers. And they actually see this as a way of serving their country like a very patriotic um, view of serving the the country.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that all these cultural values, social norm, expectations, they, they can all play a role in facilitating the rise of these masculinities and the buy-in, so to say. men, but also women into that. And that moves us to the last point where I would like both of you to join in and thinking about a way forward. I mean, what does this mean for creating peace? And uh, what could be responses to this phenomenon of uh, militarized masculinities, which we described uh, as a strategy also of elites to to mobilize around this in order to stay in power? Uh, How can we dismantle this? And I think Brandon made some first steps in that direction by looking at the question of masculinities and the more nuanced approach to masculinities. And uh, often we see, however, in post-conflict situations after conflict that these transitions or this, um, these responses are often masculinity-blind uh, transitions. So there's not much thinking around this. So how could we take a better masculinity lens, so to say, or how could we look into the post-conflict uh, world from a masculinity lens? What what would it help in order f- uh, to create sustainable peace? Because it's not taken at the moment, as we as we heard during this conversation.
2: Well, I think there, there are sort of harder and softer benefits in terms of or strategies that you might think about in terms of what this lens might look at. And the first, perhaps... Sounds soft, but I think is quite hard to do. But once you start to apply a sort of masculinity's lens, it 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 makes you ask certain questions and highlight certain issues. Which sounds soft, but I think has a has a ramification. I mean, in 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 feminist studies, uh, Cynthia Enloe always talks about feminist curiosity, and I sort of think we need to ask questions and we need to be curious um, and raise uh, and raise issues. Um, so for me it's really important to point out what I would call both the continuities and discontinuities with masculinities. So we have a tendency to focus on the the violent masculinities and and so we should. Uh, But one way of tackling that is also to point out that there are multiple other ways that masculinities play themselves out. For example, many men, who come through conflict, if I think of Northern Ireland, as many young men are maybe being attracted back into paramilitary groups, as young men who've come out of the conflict feeling anxious, depressed, and uh, withdraw from society or channel their pain inwardly. So we have to talk about both the negativity and the vulnerability. And when we start to apply that more nuanced way of thinking about things, I think we start to move how we might think about our peace process slightly differently uh, in the same way as uh, I spoke about it in in terms of thinking of masculinities within a system rather than just existing within individuals. We can ask those same questions. So, you know, masculinities are persistent as as Brisner has, has just told us, but they also change. So actually the way militaries are now trying to recruit people is sort of through this idea of the compassionate soldier, rather than just, you know, the warrior soldier. I mean, the British government rolled out a whole campaign targeted at 16 to 25 year olds with slogans like, hey, snowflake, your army needs your compassion. You know, stop fighting zombies and come and join the military with us. I mean, these were some of the types of slogans that they were putting forward. So they were adapting to this context to try and attract people in, in a different way. And so that's what I mean by highlighting and asking questions. It might sound soft, But I do think we have to ask those questions in the same ways we have to ask questions about investments, about the role of different institutions. And those masculinities exist on a continuum. So, you know, the United Nations, for example, and work I would do internationally, that's not free from masculinities. You know, if you look at food aid, ask who's driving the four by fours really fast through some African country. And, and you know, they're enacting a certain type of masculinity in, in the way that aid is delivered, you know, so we have to ask these questions across all of our different types of institutions. So I know I've said it before, I know that sounds soft, but I think we have to expose these types of, of discussions and also the real dangers with them that then moves us further along to harder questions around obviously structural and legal reform you know how do police are trained how do we deal with questions of uh, domestic violence you know how do we sanction people in terms of behavior through to more individual interventions you know the need for more self-reflective awareness with men uh, with young boys you know that type of more psychosocial type of work so for me there's a whole spectrum, but I felt I really wanted to highlight the sort of questioning sometimes because we don't do that.
1: And Prisna, is there space for this kind of questioning in Guatemala? If you look at what Brandon just said, uh, do you see this could make a change in Guatemala? Is there space to think about these questions at the moment? And and if not, uh, what are the obstacles? If yes, what could these questions be in a context like Guatemala?
3: Yeah, I, I don't feel that right now there's a lot of space, uh, but there's always um, some space, I think, with certain people and with certain institutions or organizations who are also interested in this. I do think that there's right now there's so much going on in terms of the regression in Guatemala in terms of the situation of uh, of the state and the democratic state but definitely this idea of uh, regression towards militarization has been sort of uh, laid already and is being discussed within certain circles. I do think that there there tends to be an idea when we speak of militarization and and violent masculinities of of speaking primarily of the presence of the army Mm -hmm. and not so much more other structural aspects. And I think it's key to sort of think about when we think of security, there the, there tends to be this idea that we need to speak of arms and these sort of strong forces that can face, you know, like these big this organized crime. And I mean, we, we see that within Guatemalan state, for example, there's organized crime that is not really using uh, weapons like arms, but with, with corruption, I mean, that that is an, an organization, a, a criminal organization that needs a, a different type of understanding um, security and we, how we can reach um, security. I do think that if we're speaking of the police force, there are certain officers that are willing and wanting to generate change, particularly uh, women. I think there has been a lot of training or capacity building towards gender relations, um, violence against women, and that sort of has opened up an opportunity. Um, however, there's still a lot of fear because it is a very hierarchical um, structure where the commanding officers decide, and many officials are sort of scared. To uh, come forward. And even, for example, in cases of um, sexual harassment, which is something that happens within the police force, even though it is identified as um, something that can be penalized, very little women sort of denounce this. Um, and it's because these women are mostly harassed by their higher officers. So you can definitely see how that hierarchical structure really has an in- impact and influence in limiting the mobilization of other officers within the the police. And I think it is important to sort of discuss also how the gender roles are being understood within the police. I mean, we do see that there are stereotypes in this idea that women police only want to be in administrative work and not on the streets, for example, or they are only useful because they are the only ones who are allowed to register other women, for example and that they are weak, that they cannot sort of be on the streets to arrests. So yes, I think there's a lot that can be done within the police force. But I also think that, uh, as Brandon said, it's important to sort of look at the more structural and other spaces that influence the the construction of um, uh, militarized uh, masculinities, precisely in countries that are post-conflict and that have, have been so, sort of affected by violence. I mean, the, the signing of the peace has not meant the reduction of violence within the country.
1: The cyclical violence and that that violence doesn't end because of a of a of a peace accord and 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 this, I think it's important to realize and that brings me to the question of I mean reform and reform agendas and drivers of reform I mean the international community is somehow a driver of reform I mean in Guatemala we also saw over the years an investment by the international community on reform you mentioned some of the initiatives before uh, Prisna. for me the the, the question uh, would be the international community and reform. We are in the um, uh, an, an anniversary year of 1325. Uh, there are a lot of discussions around uh, how can the UN be more effective, how the international community can be more effective um, around reform. What advice would you give in this kind of for us at the moment uh, to look into questions of militarized masculinities? how to address uh, structural problems. Do you see that uh, there is uh, room to do that uh, with the international community? How do you assess this at the moment? So uh, that would would be interesting how you, you see reform efforts by the international community picking up these problems, which seem to be quite well analyzed, quite well understood on the ground. That would be interesting for our listeners to understand better.
3: I think in in the case of Guatemala, as as I said previously, the support and the drive from the community, the international community has been very important to move forward uh, some of these um, discussions and and reforms, not only in security, but justice as well. I feel that we have sort of had, um, you could say a certain withdrawal from the international community on, on Guatemala, and it would be important to sort of bring back that focus to see the importance to maintain the contributions, the support, and the pressure to continue with these uh, reforms. I do think in terms of um, the resolutions on women, peace, and security, haven't paid enough attention to the civil security forces. There's much more attention being paid to armies and sort of like the peace operations, for example, but not so much the reform that needs to happen within the civil security forces. And that is also a, a very important aspect to speak of peace building in Guatemala. So I, I do think it, it's an opportunity to sort of bring attention to this matter and see that civil security forces play an important role in peace building, as I said.
1: And how do you see reform efforts by the international community looking at it from the perspective of addressing uh, the issue of of, of militarized masculinities. What's your experience on that?
3: No, uh, we haven't really seen any focus uh, (laughs) on uh, militarized masculinities. I think there's been much more uh, attention being paid to democratic reform, to the combat against impunity, which is is a big issue also in Guatemala and to continue to strengthen the judicial system. For example, I think there's a big sort of focus on the judicial uh, sector and and much less on security.
1: Thanks, Prisna. Maybe uh, Brandon also on on this topic of the international community would be really interesting.
2: Yeah, it's obviously a really big big discussion. You know, I think some of the UN resolutions, of course, we can debate whether they actually have an impact on the ground, but they certainly, when it comes to women, peace and security, have reshaped the discussion quite substantially around issues of gender and violence against women. So from my perspective, uh, even though they might have their limits, they have also changed the debate, certainly uh, in that realm. Um, And I think one of the challenges there is that if you look at uh, the various uh, UN security resolutions around women, peace and security, the first time it mentions men is only in 2013 and subsequently mentions men and boys a few times after that in various resolutions. I won't go through the details of them, but where it does mention men It mentions them either as uh, generally as victims then of sexual violence, um, which of course is a significant problem. And it's great that that is now getting recognized as something which happens in conflict. But for me, you know, we shouldn't conflate that with addressing issues of masculinity uh, and masculinities and violent masculinities and that sort of wider political context. So I think we could start to ask those wider questions and maybe start to look at how do we start to put concepts like militarized masculinities and how do we start to think about widening this agenda out from being violation-centric, as important as that is, to being more system-centric. And I'm saying that knowing the limits of that type of a process in the international community, but we know that we can change the discourse because we've done that effectively with Women, Peace, and Security. So how do we widen that out and start to ask these more systematic questions. And one of my concerns at the moment is that when I say I want to talk about masculinities, it's equated with this very liberal idea that you just want to talk about what's happened to men. Mm-hmm. But actually, what I want to talk about is what Brisner was talking about, which is the persistence of impunity, the persistence of these institutions with adapt, and they change uh, over time. And they, you know, we move from, you know, the the violent groups on the street to the big men in the parliament wearing their suits and they're still enacting a form of masculinity. They're just doing it uh, with a different set of tools rather than guns. They're using the economy, they're using corruption and exclusion uh, as Brisner said. So yeah, the resolutions might be one vehicle of that but I think the international community could start to say a lot more about that. And my concern um, I know prisoners talking about it slightly differently, but the international community is sort of pulling back from anything that's a little bit too controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't really want to be tackling governments on, on, on corruption. And there's this sort of uh, demonstration of this type of militarized masculinity, because we're seeing it going on in other countries as well, where there's sort of a reversion back to the hard security agenda rather than a human security agenda. So the international community has to make that that shift and put masculinities back within a sort of more human security agenda, which has become something that people tend to not talk about very much anymore.
1: No, that's a clear call for reinvigorated approaches around this, but you also show very well, both of you, how high the stakes are, you know, and and it means actually political action by the international community and that political action we see currently is lacking. That brings us always back to civil society, who is basically the one driver uh, for change. But we also see, obviously, limited civil society space, as as Prisna mentioned. Uh, uh, What, as a last um, uh, comment in terms of the way forward from both of you, how do you see the potential of civil society to effectuate change today around this topic of uh, militarized masculinities?
3: Um, Yeah, I do think that there is um, a lot of um, interest Uh, and motivation from civil society to sort of question uh, these militarized um, ways, because we are seeing sort of the the attacks uh, towards um, human rights activists, for example, or particularly indigenous uh, populations. We have seen in the past, for example, where there were peaceful protests, uh, a much more bigger presence of uh, police um, everywhere, for example. So I do think that there is a desire for this to change uh, within Guatemala and not only this militarized ways that governments have been implementing, but also the way that authorities have sort of continue to not prioritize human rights and the well-being of its citizens, but sort of being more interested in protecting their own situations um, when they are being faced with um, corruption uh, claims, for example, sort of protecting their their economic and political power. So yes, I do think that there is this possibility within civil society to sort of uh, continue to sort of question this and act. So, I mean, this also COVID situation has had its implications this year uh, where it has limited The mobilization, but I do hope that there will continue to be this um, sort of strength and desire from civil society to move forward.
1: Yes, I think it's it's, and also I mean demonstrations in in the U.S. around the Black Lives Matter issue show very clearly that uh, there are alternatives to the militarization, to the idea of defunding the police. I mean, who who would have basically talked about this um, a few months ago? So I think there is. There are activities they, on the ground uh, that are not connected yet um, uh, to the international level, which seems to be still very hesitant. But maybe to over to Brandon, um, some last words around um, uh, how he sees the potential of civil society to make a change here.
2: Well, it's sort of a difficult question because you know, every context is so different. And I mean, we know, I mean, Brisson talked about Guatemala, but, you know, in Colombia, you know, activists who are opposing, whether it's uh, different state or even sometimes companies, are being killed. You know, so it's 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 a serious, it's a serious business, and it sort of feels a bit trite for me to sort of say we need more of that. Um, if I'm not the person at the front of that, um, and there are people, uh, luckily in civil society the world over, who are challenging uh, this type of deep-rooted militarized masculinities and the corruption and uh, you know abuse from from states all over the world and and I you know we need more of that Um, and we do know that where and of course every context is different but where that has happened and where there's been a push uh, that it can make a difference I mean Northern Ireland is a really good example I mean there's some recent research uh, from Jessica Doyle and Monica McWilliams colleagues at the the university and, and they looked at You know how the police in Northern Ireland have been dealing with domestic violence from 1992 they did a study and then they did another one in 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 2016 Um, and the police have been under a lot of pressure from civil society from different types of groups to change their training and their practices and actually shows quite a lot of positive results in terms of you know uh, and this is not just obviously I'm not talking about the whole militarism process here but that um the, the trust in the police to deal with those type of issues has is increased quite substantially. Actually, when you compare it to women's trust in their doctors to deal with these issues actually is not mapped against the, the level of, of trust that's increased in relation to the police. And that's partly a product of uh, work from many different types of activists trying to put that issue onto the agenda. Now I know that's a very different context to, you know, rural Guatemala, uh, where impunity is is rife. But uh, we know when there is these type of training, where there are these type of interventions, we can start to chip away at these issues. And I think also now, yes, we have COVID, and that's created all sorts of different challenges for us, and it's exposed all of the. Uh, Structural gaps within our society in terms of poverty and inequality and so on and so forth. But it's also highlighted that there are new battlegrounds for these issues Mm. and and some of these battlegrounds are in social media are on on the Internet, Uh, you know, there's a massive backlash against feminism that's happening within uh, the Internet and has been going on for the last 10 Mm. or, or 15 years you know, we have to find ways to to battle against that to challenge the growth that we've seen, particularly in Western but other countries as well, of these sort of new right wing type uh, masculinity so there's work to be done all over the place and that work cannot be done without activists and civil society.
1: Absolutely. And, and I think um, violence uh, can only be prevented with the active support of civil society. So I thank you very much for this conversation we had. And, and the purpose was really to have a conversation about uh, a topic that uh, we, we tried to unpack a little bit here in the short period of time we, we have together. It showed us that there are possibilities for hope. I mean, hope is always within civil society. Hope is, is, is always with looking at it uh, from alternative perspectives, and I think the looking at peace from a masculinity lens provides us with this alternative look, alternative outlook. We also see that the international community is not there yet, there's much more activism, much more argumentation, influence needed to change the narrative uh, there. We see significant problems on the ground in Guatemala and uh, opportunities to learn lessons from there. And I think how to learn the good and the bad lessons to more structurally bring this into the debates is still something which we need to do. And uh, Brandon mentioned Northern Ireland as a case where there are some positive examples, also negative examples, but some positive examples that we can draw on. So we are not alone on this. And I think we need to connect better on this. Uh, We are up against a lot. But I guess uh, it's, it's not hopeless, as this conversation uh, showed to me. So I thank you very much for the conversation, again, for being with us here today. And um, I wish you a good evening to Northern Ireland and a good morning or the rest of the day to Guatemala. So all the best to both of you. Bye, Brandon. Bye, Prisna.
0: Thank you very
3: much. Bye. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode. Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.